with an understanding of, uh, of what Mizrach means, uh, essentially uh, central column, and also we know the central column generally refers to the aspect of restriction. This is the, uh, the sole intelligence that can create a unified whole in the universe. So when it says in the uh, Bible, Shemot, in Yitro, or chapter 19, it says, in the third month, after the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and in this chapter 19, we have the revelation of the Torah on Mount Sinai the significance of the presentation of the Ten Commandments. Mizrach, which we also learned, means uh, central column. And if you recall now, that the third month, Gemini, which is an air sign, we said also happens to be the air sign of the air signs. What does that indicate to us? That in this particular month, in this particular month, the force of energy intelligence called restriction becomes most manifest more than any other month. Because you have both aspects of the central column force. The location indicates its central column. It's the third month of the first of the Yud. And also, it indicates that it is by and within itself a central column or air sign, which can unify, which can unify the universe. When the Jews went out of Egypt, the objective was to come to Sinai to receive the Torah. What was the significance of the Torah? Why the Torah? We also know that on Shavuot, this holiday, uh, incidentally, I'm not going into uh, how we can tap the cosmos and how we can tap this energy that we will shortly understand, because all that is already in tapes and I feel it would be repetitious. Uh, for me to go into the, the same aspects which are readily available. And we're trying here to take another dimension, uh, reach out, understand a little more of what Shavuot is about, because the more we know about something, the stronger the connection we have toward that uh, particular thing. What was this idea when the Jews went out of Egypt that there should be a revelation of the Ten Commandments? What was so important of the Ten Commandments? While for most of us, the Ten Commandments, from an educational point of view, we have uh, been maybe brainwashed, if you can say, that the Ten Commandments was the most significant event, the most significant event that ever took place, not only in the history of the Jew, but in the history of mankind, because all religions, and in fact, all peoples feel that 
this was a very significant month, which meant that in this month, in this day of Shavuot, the Ten Commandments were presented, were presented to the Jewish nation. How significant can we say it, it, that it must have been if most of the people of the world, including those who adhere to the precepts and those who do not, really conform to exactly what the Ten Commandments require of us. So in practicality, we might say that the Ten Commandments does not have the kind of influence. It has the awe which surrounds it. And we say the revelation of the Ten Commandments. But from a very practical point of view, how many people feel the, the significance of this holiday called Shavuot, even those who observe it? Observe it, I would say, and what I, from my observation, because it's one of those holidays that have to be observed. But that there is a special significance or there is a feeling that something important happened this day, other than the fact that you can say, well, the Ten Commandments were revealed. So what? How many people live by it? Civilization certainly doesn't live by it because from that point onwards, look at the amount of wars that has engulfed this whole universe. So how significant could the presentation of the Torah on Mount Sinai and the effect of the presentation of the Torah on Mount Sinai have had on, on civilization? We might say almost none. Almost none. The moral code even is not something that... that most people, I would say there is a very small minority that adhere to the principles. So what is this significance that supposedly was revealed and what do we want from it other than tradition? And if we're in that aspect of tradition, we can now have the answer why 90% of the Jewish people do not observe the Shavuot as a holiday any longer because... It doesn't have that kind of meaning, that kind of significance, other than as much as Cecil B. DeMille tried to uh, create a, uh, a kind of aura around this great significant event, but by and large, after you walk out of the movie, you, you know, you forget, you forget what happened. But what we have learned now, what we have learned now, ties in very much with two aspects. The Ten Commandments are mentioned in which parsha, which section of the Torah? Called Yitro, a non-Jew. For those of you who still, and I guess I'm addressing myself to all those who will be listening to these tapes and, and the video, and therefore I say all of those who are listening, uh, and still observe this holiday, know that Ruth, the book called Ruth, is read on the holiday of Shavuot. The significance of Ruth. Well, she does play somewhat of a role. The fact that she was David's great-grandmother. So what? Now, what claim does Ruth have on us or on David just because she happened to be his grandmother? She plays such a significant role in this holiday. And furthermore, 
Why is the Torah, and I know this is going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. I don't see anyone here presently. I think they, they might have had to leave. The fact that so much significance, so much significance of what this holiday is all about is surrounded by non-Jews. I mean, weren't there any, weren't there any other Jews around that could fill the shoes of a root? The 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 uh, golden calf came after the revelation on Mount Sinai. Oh, it came after. It that came after. Why do we need the Torah for it? What's that? And what do we need the Torah for it? It came after. You mean what? If, if the if the calf came after the after the Matan uh, Torah. No, no. There was revelation, and then Moses brought down the five books of Moses. Remember, the revelation con consisted only of the Ten Commandments. Right? Only of the Ten Commandments. The five books of Moses and the tablets supposedly contain all of the Torah. And we are told that the tablets, well, we'll cover that a little later. But anyway, what is the significance? I mean, why, you know, why should all of this be surrounded from, from the point of view of Ruth and the point of view of Yitro? We are stressing here the significance. We are stressing here the significance of, of East, of Central Column. We also have a clue as to why the revelation of, on Mount Sinai occurred in the third month, means the, meaning the month of Gemini, because obviously the revelation has some connection also with Central Column. We also know, for those of you who have attended some of the uh, introductory classes of the center, that what happened on Mount Sinai? What was significant on Mount Sinai? The Jews said, Nasa Venishma. The Jews said, we shall do, and then tell us what it says. Now, I don't think there is one Jew alive today that believes that story. Because from pure experience, whoever listens after we hear, let alone do before we hear, it's not just not the trait of a Jew. Because if he is an inquisitive person, of which he should be, and if he has something that seems to be unique about him, and there is something unique. Nobel Prizes, people who have changed the, the, the uh, continuum of, 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 of civilization have been a few Jews, whether it's Moses, the extreme of Marx, and so on. Wherever you move, there were Jews involved, despite, despite their their minimal physical effect on, on the overall population. So there is something there significant. What was it? And why would these people accept revelation 
accept revelation before they even heard what the Ten Commandments were all about. What's that? Well, in any event, the answer, the answer that we uh, that we ascribe, because I don't want to go into detail. As I said, uh, much of this is covered in introductory lectures, and I don't think it's fair to repeat them. And that is that nasev nishma. When it says the word nasev nishma, it is another coded example of what the Torah is all about. In one other place in the Torah it says, not one, but one significant place where it says the word Naseh, and that is in Genesis 1, when the Creator spoke to somebody and said, Naseh Adam, let us make man. Let us make man. In other words, the word Naseh, translated as we will do, doesn't necessarily mean we will do, but that we are going to be made or we are going to make, not necessarily do. And so from the, from the Kabbalistic point of view of what happened on Mount Sinai is where these people, these very primitive people called Jews, these very primitive people called Jews, when they were told, they weren't told about what was included in the, ten, in the Ten Commandments? But they were told what the Ten Commandments would do for them. That they were told in advance. And what were they told it would do, says the Zohar, in Pashat Yitro? There would be revelation. But that word revelation has become corrupted. Revelation of the Ten Commandments. What a great feat. That's not what it meant. When we say the revelation of the Torah, what in essence it means was that the power, the internal energy force of the Ten Commandments would create revolution, revelation, maybe revolution, but revelation that there would no longer be uncertainty. In other words, there would be vada'ut, there would be certainty in the world. That was the power that the Ten Commandments would provide for civilization. Not the fact that do not kill, do not steal. The power of these aspects, they understood, would create certainty and remove permanently uncertainty. Now there is no greater blessing for all of mankind is the fact that you can see from beginning to end. There is no uncertainty. The one problem, if I were to ask, what is the problem of civilization today? I, would, I can describe it in one word. Now, I would not say housing. I would not say food. I would not say the other thousands of answers given for the problems of society. I would say there is one answer. And that is the energy intelligence of uncertainty prevails. Everyone is worried about tomorrow. No one knows what tomorrow will bring. And that creates fears and creates everything, but it's uncertainty. So when we discuss revelation on Mount Sinai, we are discussing what? Revelation. We are discussing that the reality of life became revealed and there was no more illusion. And everybody could see from beginning to end. 
Everyone saw the whole picture. You saw that if someone thought he would come in to steal something from your house, you saw it in advance. Every, everyone would see everything in advance. When the Jew heard this, ah, oh, this is a prize. This is a prize. And so when he said, how to affect it can come later, but are you telling me this is what it is? Of course. But he said, how, how do you have to, how do you achieve something like that? And the creator said, you're going to have to become a real Jew. What do you mean a real Jew? You're going to have to have the extreme and epitome of desire to receive for oneself alone. That wasn't too hard to convince the Jew about. That to increase his desire to receive. He didn't need much thinking. You remember we asked, how could the Jew, without thinking, say, sure, tell, you want to give me the Ten Commandments? Nasa tell me what it says there later. That's not what they were talking about because no Jew would ever have accepted the Torah on that principle. They were told in advance, you want to have the greatest desire to receive because it is the only way that everything, all knowledge that could be acquired would of necessity contain, must contain a vessel that can draw all this kind of energy, all this kind of intelligence. So what happened with the word Naseh they agreed to become, like it says in Genesis 1, a new creation, a creation of the epitome of the desire to receive for oneself alone. Because the rewards meant everything that the Jew could accept, and he did accept it. And had it not been for the breaking or the shattering of the, uh, of the uh, Torah, which we will shortly discuss what that meant, Illusion would never have been part of our realm. We wouldn't have to be frightened about what's going to happen tomorrow. Illusion would not be part of the landscape of this terrestrial realm. So what is Shavuot about? Revelation. Now, as the Zohar constantly says, Ein edel beruchani. When an event occurs... An eternal event. What do I mean by an eternal? It is not part of the illusionary physical realm, but is part of the reality realm. It never disappears. Once it has come, it is here permanently. This scene that happened on Mount Sinai, the scene of revelation, the scene of revelation is ours to be had again each and every single year. Because once this aspect of revelation, what does it mean, revelation? No illusion. You mean that I can, I can have access to information of tomorrow, the next day, and the day after? I can be guaranteed that kind of life? Beautiful. That is what Shavuot is about today. It is not that we are celebrating again the revelation of Mount Sinai, another holiday, to burden us with another one of those holidays, but rather to connect, if we can, and the Ari and, and the Zohar, and they are the only ones who have provided us with this information by which we can connect and tap into what? Revelation. Not the Ten Commandments. 
The Ten Commandments was the medium by which we will make that connection. But the purpose, the objective, was not the Ten Commandments. The objective was what the Creator always had in mind for us. The benefits, the beneficial aspects of, of life. Not the troubles that, that we only encounter each day for, for thousands and thousands of years. This was not the objective. The objective was tov. The objective was good. The objective was what is called good certainty. Certainty is another word for everything that is good. Uncertainty is the embodiment of everything that is negative, that is lack, that is that is is the is the basis for all of the troubles of the world. Uncertainty. What would ensure the Jew? What would ensure the Jew? And for that matter, all of mankind, in other words, he was there as the desire to receive in its greatest potential. He was there representing the whole world. The whole world. He was going to bring down this certainty, this energy thought intelligence, energy thought intelligence of certainty for everyone was not only for the Jew, but why was he capable of bringing it down and no other nation? Because he had the greatest desire to receive. He had this greatest negative aspect that is required to bring down this kind of energy. The reason, and getting back to the original question, so why was it included in Yitro? Because another trait of the non-Jew, as opposed to the Jew, is the fact that he does not have that kind of desire to receive that a Jew has. He is not, he is not as greedy, the non-Jew is not as greedy, he is not as selfish, and therefore it has its plus and minuses. He is therefore not one of those seven who change the, the, uh, the uh, format of civilization from its beginning, meaning those seven people, including, uh, including uh, Moses and all of the other Jews, like Einstein, who was considered one of those, who changed the destiny of the universe only because they had that kind of desire to receive so intense that they can draw this kind of revelation. Einstein, all he produced for us was a revelation, a revelation of quanta, a revelation of a unified whole, a revelation of an atom, of what it means, what is energy, what is power. The non-Jew, not having this kind of desire to receive was also there to teach us that remember on the one hand you can draw this energy but if you abuse that energy if you don't balance out that energy and despite the fact that it was in the third month and mind you the creator knew in advance that the revelation must take place when when there is this cosmic energy of central column of central column, Gemini. Because why do we call it Gemini? 
I also explain that, but briefly, why is it called Gemini? Twins? Because it meant it is more than just twins. These two, the two commandments, or the two, the two children that, or the two uh, cherubim that are are were always on top of the of the edut of the aron of the ark, were always symbolic. They were they were one unified whole. They represented plus and minus. They represented negative and positive. And they were brought together as one unified whole by the Jew. But the Jew was so full of negativity. How would he accomplish this purpose? Therefore the Torah was given to Chodesh Ashlishi so that we should have the benefit of that kind of cosmological influence that we can establish resistance. And if that wasn't enough, he says, learn from the Goy. Meaning, the one who does not have, not in a de- in a derogatory way. Because as you know, and as I've said many a time, what happened after the golden calf? What, how, did, how did the Creator address Himself to Moshe? He says, I will make you for the big goy. What did that mean? Why was He making, turning Moshe into a goy? He was Jewish, we thought. Now He's going to turn him into a goy. It didn't mean that. What He meant was that, you see, they failed. Why did they fail? Because they did not exercise Mizrach. They did not exercise the energy intelligence of central column. They did not exercise resistance, restriction. Give me, give me, give me without saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Must I take it all for me? Despite the fact that I have that great desire to receive. It is true. Because of this intense desire to receive, at the same time, it was more difficult to restrict because with every positive comes a minus. They can draw more energy, but yet at the same time, they could fall victim to the fact that they would not restrict. And therefore, it was a yitro and a root. Two. Now, while the Zohar says that root was the Moabite, and Torah even says that while you, the Moab, Moab could not enter the congregation of Israel, the Moabite could. Why did the Creator, if he wanted to produce a, uh, a King David, which is significant because we know that King David was born on Shavuot. He was born on Shavuot. Why was he born on Shavuot? We'll shortly get to that. But the significance is his grandmother, great-grandmother, Ruth. What was so significant? Why couldn't the Creator have arranged it that he comes straight down the line? Straight down the line, Jew after Jew, and out comes David. Was it of necessity that he must traverse a non-Jewish line and have that line included within the significance of the Sphira of Malchut, which is King David? Why was it necessary? He could just as well have planned it and have the great-grandmother come straight from, from a line of, of a Jewish tribe. Why did he arrange it that way? For the same reason that we learn also in Pashat Yitro, the Pasha, the whole section 
is referred to Yitro. And we can ask one other question. Moshe couldn't find a nice Jewish girl to marry? What was wrong? I mean, there weren't enough nice girls around then? That difficult? Must have been one girl there that Moshe could have married. What's that? We're in Egypt. And he couldn't find a nice Jewish girl in Egypt. No nice Jews in Egypt. Egyptians are not nice Jews. What? Maybe if he came from Syria, it would have been better. No? You don't like that one. Which one should I say? Morocco. They come from Morocco. That would be better. Why? 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 No, these are questions that we, we must raise because by raising these questions, we get a deeper insight into what this code is about. If you don't ask questions, then you just walk away from it. Maybe because of a spiritual appetite that he saw something in her that was uh, something that balanced him, his own needs. That's on the physical aspect. No, 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 no. The Jew has the grade to receive for several, and the non-Jew doesn't have it, so maybe to balance it out. All right. We know that, without getting into the details of it, but that Moshe went to Yitro because we are told from the Zohar, and only from the Zohar, that Moshe came from the side of Abel, Hevel, from the good of Hevel. And Yitro was an incarnation of Cain. And the fact that we have non-Jews, like Rabbi Akiva, who came from a line of, again, of non-Jews. Why, why, why do the non-Jews play such a predominant role? In, uh, aren't there enough Jews to, to handle the situation? Again, even there, Rabbi Akiva, that the Gemara in Shabbat says that when Moshe was chosen to be the, uh, the representative or the messenger for the Jews in the acceptance of the Torah on Mount Sinai, he said, why me? There was someone far greater than me, and that was Rabbi Akiva. And we know that Rabbi Akiva also, the line was not direct, but rather through Gerim did he descend Rabbi Akiva. In other words, for whatever reason, there was a necessity. Even here in this Pasha of Yitro, uh, right at the beginning, Yitro like to give you just that you can, for those of you, can go back to um, uh, in your spare time. In chapter 18, verse uh, 13. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from the morning unto the evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to thy people? Why sittest thou thyself alone and all the people stand about thee from morning until evening? Meaning, if you're the only judge around here and there are people who are coming with disputes or questions or whatever, they've got to wait all day just to see you. And his suggestion, as the verse continues on, his suggestion was, Make judges. 
for 10 people, and if there are difficult questions, then they go to the higher court and go to the higher court. And finally, they'll come to you if, if no one else can answer it. Moses couldn't think of that. Moses, the smartest man that ever lived. Moses, who was on such a high level of consciousness, couldn't understand something like of, of such a small nature. Instead of making people wait all day for him, re delegate the authority. No, he needed Yitro. And to the extent that this was such a great revelation of Yitro that it's even mentioned in the Torah, and that's why it says, in fact, the Pasha of Yitro is called Yitro. It's called Yitro because he made this suggestion. And therefore, he has a place in the Torah. I mean, Moshe couldn't think of it. All of us can think of something like that. Anyone going into business, and if the business expands, what does he do? Managers. He puts in managers. Everyone understood that. The only one who didn't understand it, it seems, was Moshe. Are we to believe that's the way it happened? Are we to believe that this is why the Pasha is named after Yitro? And that why the Ten Commandments mentioned in the Torah must be mentioned where? In the Pashat Yitro. There must be something more deeper, more significant. Along with what we have just said, and to make our connection and understanding, in other words, whatever we hear tonight, hear, hear, whatever we hear, hear tonight, uh, we shall hopefully capture on higher levels of consciousness. It says at the time of, of uh, Revelation, we once discussed this, and the nation of Israel saw the voices. Saw the voices. The Zohar asks, should not have said they saw the voices, they heard the voices. How come the, the text says, in, in chapter 19 of Revelation, it says that they saw the voices. Umeshiv, and he answers, the Zohar answers. Elakach this is the way we have learned this matter. Elu akolot ayu nechakim bechoshech anan varafel. Vinira'im behem kemoshinira guf. One of the truly uh, mystical expressions of the Zohar in his answer to a, a very simple question. Why does it say that they saw when it should have said they heard? And what is he answering? that the voices were embedded, nechkak, were inscribed, more so were uh, uh, engraved in, in the clouds. Were engraved in the clouds. And they were observable. What was observable? In other words, you know, sometimes we have illusions about clouds. Have you ever seen clouds? Uh, sometimes they appear like they're mountains. If you're traveling in open spaces, they change. They have different forms. They have different meanings for different people. So the Zohar is saying 
that there is energy intelligences. There are voices speaking. There are intelligences speaking. And the clouds take the form of the way they appear. It because what kind of energy intelligence appears, and that's what we seem to observe. So you say it's an illusion? The answer is, it's not an illusion. That's really what's talking. That's really what's going on. So what the, how do you know what's going on? How do you know the, 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 the discussion that is going on between or the internal aspect of the clouds? What you observe, right? What you see. You know if it looks like a mountain, then what's going on internally in the mount in those clouds are discussions of creating mountains out of the clouds. So what happens? The cloud gives the observer, the one traveling in that automobile, and suddenly looks out yonder, he sees like he's not sure whether they're mountains or they're clouds. I'm sure we have all experienced that. So he says they look like Bodies. So actually, the way he's answering this this uh, difficult section of the of the Torah is: What do you mean they saw the voices? They saw the expression of what was going on internally within the clouds. Because not all of us see the same thing. Some One says he sees it this way, another one says he sees it that way. In other words, what the Torah wants to tell us is what, what happened before Revelation, nothing was certain. Everyone can interpret anything and everything that he wanted. As he saw or as he wanted to observe things, as he wanted to see things, that's what he saw. We all do those things in our life. We all justify our actions by seeing things the way we want to see them, although that's not what reality is about. Okay? And they saw things, This is was this generation, but what they saw was what was there. They saw reality. They saw reality. So how? Do, why does it say that they saw that? Again, to indicate to us, says the Zohar, that nothing, no body, no, no body language as it is known, expresses itself, even as I move my hands, if it wasn't the fact that I'm, something is going on internally. That's why there is a physical expression. So what the Jews were being taught immediately, is to look into the inner perspective of things. How do you look into the inner perspective of things? How? How do you achieve something like that? How do you achieve revelation? One, one clue. One clue. You've got to minimize, you've got to minimize the aspect of desire to receive. While the Jew was was embedded with this kind of desire to receive, nevertheless, for him to make the contact with revelation on Mount Sinai, meaning this coming Tuesday, we're going to be doing that same thing. The same thing that the Jew did then is what we're going to hopefully do on Shavuot, is tap that intelligence of reality. How do you do that? 
by curtailing the desire to receive, while without the desire to receive, we could never achieve the maximum of revelation. But at the same time, remember Yitro, remember Rut, remember all of those Chasidei Umoto Olam. They are called Chasidei Umoto Olam. Those non-Jews, those non-Jews, and the reason that David came through that line, and the reason that Akiva came through that line, because those Jews, those Jews who came via that and received the impression of being a non-Jew, meaning what was it that they received? They received this aspect of a restriction of desire to receive. While they were Jewish, that absolutely would follow with them, that they would have the tremendous desire to receive. But at the same time, there would be a limit, a limitation placed on that desire to receive. When he married Zipporah, or when David had to come through Ruth, or when Yitro is mentioned here, or Rabbi Akiva, they could not become what they didn't become. And I'm not suggesting that we all go out and marry Gerim, you know. Uh, but the fact remains, the fact remains that a non-Jew has the desire to receive more under control. And the answer is, of course he has it more under control. Because he doesn't have that kind of an intensity. Great, great feat. However, it appears like the Jew could not have made it if he did not have that kind of mentality alongside. Wait a second. You look at the non-Jew, you learn. He doesn't have this kind of intensity, this kind of, in Israel they say the schwitzer. You know, you know that, that Jew, he's the schwitzer. Always active, you know, he's always going to tear up the whole world, conquer the whole world. No, right alongside, even Moshe, Moshe, the great Moshe, where there was nothing hidden from him, learned something from Yitro. He couldn't figure it out himself. That's not the significance. The significance is that there is something that we must carry from the non-Jew. And that's why, in fact, Rut, Rut, Resh, Vav, Tav, is 606. What does that denote for us? Because we know that the seven mitzvot of B'nai Noach, in other words, there were seven mitzvot before the 613. The On Mount Sinai, Revelation only included another 606. The 613 that we have, of the precepts included in the Torah were not a revelation of 613, but a revelation of 606. The other seven, the other seven were there before. They were the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noah. So the reason why there had to be this kind of uh, parallel, parallel direction in Jewish life was of necessity to be accompanied and influenced by this aspect called, quote, the non-Jew, meaning what? The tempered, the tempered desire to receive. This is what is the only way that a Jew who is born that way can only access to revelation. If he does not temper that desire to receive, he will never get it. How does he temper the desire? By restriction. By restriction. 
Certainly restriction by the Jew is far more difficult than it is by the non-Jew because his desire to receive is of a greater intensity. Yeah, when you face that, like, you mentioned that voting is an evil part of ourselves, the law part of ourselves. Would it not be an interpretation to be to temper the we could not experience, we could not experience revelation without the assistance of that concept. And it also says that in the time of, of the Mashiach, that this is not going to be the job for the Jew alone. This is not the job for the Jew alone. Rabbi Ashlag, in his Matan uh, Torah, in his gift of the Bible, states very clearly that if, it, if the, the non-Jew does not participate in the love thy neighbor as they would thyself, similar as the Jew has been commanded in, in Leviticus, then the Mashiach cannot come. I'm talking about the test without as well as within. It's only within. Therefore, we can other, understand another aspect that on... Ashvot, there is a custom, you know, in the, not only in the Betakneset, not only in the synagogue, but also in the homes, to bring flowers. Flowers is, is the symbolization of Shavuot. Now, why is that? Why, why flowers? Because we know that the vegetable kingdom, the vegetable kingdom, which includes flowers, is symbolic of the Vav, is symbolic of the Vav, of the Yudke Vavke, of the four kingdoms, of the four kingdoms. The inanimate, and then you have the vegetable kingdom, and you go up, speaking from the point of view of, of uh, light. The reason why we put these flowers, the reason why we put these flowers all around us, because... This is Vav, this is Eirampin. No, when you start from Yud. But it's, 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 it's Eirampin. It's Eirampin. That's why I said, depending if you're looking from the vessel or you're looking from the point of view of the light. But in any event, the green represents central column. It represents central column. Because it represents central column, again, why... Why do we put this minhag? Is it a symbolization? Is, is it a minhag? It is teaching us because we're going to make use of those flowers. What do, you make, what do you mean make use of flowers? Because we know why is the vegetable kingdom associated with central column? Because it's thought, energy, intelligence is resistance. Where do we get the air we breathe? Where do we get the air we breathe? If, if the flowers didn't make that air for us, we couldn't exist. Air comes from the vegetable kingdom. It is this process of breathing in and out the way the flowers do it. And that's why man also must conform to that principle because if he didn't breathe in and out and he just breathed in, he couldn't exist. He must have, and it's inbuilt within him, this aspect of sharing. That's why he must blow out the air. You can't keep it for yourself. It's another symbolization. 
Everything that surrounds this holiday, everything that surrounds this holiday is surrounded and wound up with only one aspect, how to tap the energy intelligence of resistance, how to tap the energy intelligence of restriction. All right. Is there any questions? No question. Yes. What's the significance of the white also? Uh, there is another custom. There is another custom uh, to also have a dairy meal. Chalavi. On no other holiday, on no other holiday, is that is that kind of a uh, tradition? But on Shavuot, it is. There are many reasons given for it. Many reasons given for it. But I think the the uh, the underlying reason is because what dairy always represents for us, and that is the aspect of sharing, the aspect of sharing. So with restriction, obviously, if there is no sharing but it's just restriction and there's no sharing, that by and within itself would not create the kind of circuitry that we could experience within, within the bulb. In other words, to create a circuitry, you need the participation of all three energy intelligences that we learned today. Right, left, and center. Mikhail, Gabriel, and Uriel. Before you can have a unified whole, you must have the three components of the unified whole acting as one unified whole. And it is only then that we can experience the connection with revelation. Uh, you say if somebody would be fast, would that be an actual restriction? What's that? To fast. You mean to fast on, uh, on Shavuot? On Shavuot. <laughs> no. Uh, while in essence... We, on Shavuot, you might ask that question. If, like on Yom Kippur, we have reached another, the highest level of consciousness, supposedly by fasting, which is called the Bina consciousness. Bina consciousness means that's where the energy store is located. That is always the endeavor of any uh, spiritual climbing to achieve something, is Bina. Actually, Shavuot is Bina. But what is the difference then between Yom Kippur and Shavuot? The difference is that on Bina, we are not looking for, for the total revelation. On Shavuot, there is total revelation. On, on Bina, uh, on Yom Kippur, it is connected and, and merely directed to one aspect. And that is the kind of life, the kind of cassette that I want to choose for the rest of the year, the kind of cassette that I'm going to choose, and that it should be a good cassette. And to achieve that being a consciousness, I must fast. On Shavuot, there wasn't going to be any more Torah. It was going to be all over with. The Mashiach had arrived. Had they only waited 40 more days and not have made the golden calf, there would, be, there would not have been any necessity for the Torah. It would have been all over with. 
at that point, it was all over with. Yom Kippur is there to provide us with another year of energy, nothing more. It doesn't have any connection to do with the overall galaxies and cosmos of Mashiach. Shavuot represented at that time, and for us it represents today, total revelation. What is the difference between before Mashiach and after Mashiach? The aspect of uncertainty. After Mashiach, it is certainty for everyone. Before Mashiach, we still live in this parallel universe of illusion together with with certainty. Illusion meaning uncertainty and certainty which means no illusion. That can only come after the coming of the Mashiach. That's the kind of energy we tap in on Shavuot. The Mashiach concept. Bina of Yom Kippur is only something that will keep me going for one more year. Nothing to do with the realm of Mashiach. In fact, it is the only holiday the only holiday that does not require any actions. Pesach, you must eat the matzah. Sukkot, you must, uh, you must make the sukkah. On Shavuot, it is the easiest and simplest holiday. Nothing really to do. What's that? What's that? When? Not to eat. No, no, no. You must eat meat as well. What's that? That's right. To have one dairy meal and the rest should be meat, sure. No restrictions. No restrictions insofar as the physical reality is concerned. There is nothing positive that must be done. In fact, if you don't eat the dairy meal, it is not something that you have not fulfilled if you didn't eat the dairy meal. If you slept through the whole shvot, you also tap that, that consciousness. Not to do work. That's right. But not like on Pesach to eat the matzah or on Sukkot to make that Sukkot or to eat in that Sukkot or to have the lulav in that row. And if he didn't, he didn't, he taps the energy anyway. The reason for staying up all night is only... Oh, why do we stay up? I, I mentioned that in the tape. That's why I didn't want to uh, repeat it again. You didn't hear the tape? All right. You must have heard a marathon on Shavuot in, in, uh, in Israel, right? But that would, the reason we stay up all night is, you know, they sell life insurance. And I've always said uh, the Kabbalist doesn't sell... He sells life insurance, too. There's only one difference between the two. The life insurance you buy from an insurance company is usually payable after death. And the insurance policy that the capitalist sells is insuring life, that you extend life rather than collect after you die. If you stay up all night, as I, as I mentioned in the tape on Shavuot, and you, you cover the areas and read the areas that are prescribed, within, within uh, the Ari's teachings, he guarantees us, as the Zohar says, one who is up all night is guaranteed that he will complete the year, meaning until Rosh Hashanah, he is guaranteed that he will complete the year, if he's up all night, 
and that nothing, no physical harm can come to him. That's her. I mean, if, if it is true, that's, that's what you call life insurance. That's all. That's all. Oh, I would agree. But, but most, most Jews, even those who still adhere to the rituals of, of this holiday, are not up all night. So, what's that? No, no, there is a prescribed uh, method on how to, this should be done. A prescribed method. All right. That's why I didn't mention it. While it's very significant, but I, I, I felt that it could be picked up uh, by the tapes. What's that? Yes, yes, provided, provided that during the day, during the day that individual was, uh, was uh, on a, on a uh, totally spiritual conscious level and that all of his actions, but every action, minor or major, was totally involved in a sharing restriction frame of reference. If not, then his whatever dreams and whatever, uh, wherever his his sleep is bringing him to, can never bring him to being a conscious. It provided that morning, that from morning until he went to sleep, he was living within that frame of reference. But you can, you can, <laughs> you can. All right. Now getting back to what all this meant for us insofar as the, uh, this Pashat Bamidbar, and, and it's beautiful that it coincides with, uh, with Shavuot. And that is that the, we said before that we have the signs of the Zodiac. How can we, how can we actually control the influences if we can so the Zohar says, by understanding the principle of what made revelation, because what is controlling the, the zodiac, signs of the zodiac mean? In essence, in a word, what do you mean to control? Control for what purpose? So we discussed that in every sign of the zodiac, there are positives and, and negatives. Because of, what does that mean? They're not connected. They're not one unified whole, because if the positive and negative were connected as one unified whole, there would be no problems. But because we are innately brought into this world with these two reflections of a positive nature and of a negative nature, meaning that they are separated. It is fragmented. It is not unified. The Zohar brings to our attention these two aspects that within every, whether it's a, a, an air sign, there is going to be three composites. And if they're not brought to a unified whole, if they're not brought to a unified whole, then no way can you achieve a dominion over the signs. You must endeavor to bring out this unified whole. Therefore, when the Torah says in, in, in uh, Numbers, they travel. Who traveled first? Yehuda. And the Zohar asks, what? Why would the Torah have to tell us 
how they travel, when they travel, when they stop, all of their nesiyot. And there's a great, uh, a great amount of ink spent to tell us about their travels. Is that really a moral teaching even? Let's say the Torah is, is teaching us morality, is teaching us intelligences. What does the nesiyot have to do? Nesiyot. And the Zohar answers, the significance of these nesiyot, of these travels, is to talk about the travels of our life. We travel through life. You want to know how to travel through life? You must always begin with Yehuda. You must always begin with that central column. If you can bring the central column, the act of restriction, into every aspect of your life, then what is the purpose and what is the function of central column? To create one unified whole, to bring the positive and the negative together. And therefore, when it's said that Yehuda always led the travels, he was talking about the individual traveling through his lifetime. You want to know how to travel through your lifetime? You want to know how to control these cosmos? Let the leader of your, of your track in life, of your travel in life, be led by the central column. And that's why it really is significant that it somehow was connected with Shavuot. If we can live by that aspect of restriction, you then bring together like the bulb. The filament brings together two fragmented aspects, two fragmented entities called positive and negative. The filament. The restriction brings together both, and once they become one unified whole, you have a circuit of energy. This was the significance of Yehuda traveling first.